Good morning. My name is David Kleinard, and our scripture reading for today comes from the book of John, chapter 5, verses 37 through 47, as Jesus responds in very stern manner to the legalists, the Pharisees, who were questioning Jesus' authority to heal on the Sabbath. Let's listen to what Jesus said. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in the, my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Thank you, David. It's amazing what the Lord does in the midst of a church service and the encouragement that you get, the ability of impacting someone else's life just by saying, hi, good morning, how have you been? Is it hot enough for you? That kind of stuff. You know, the life of the church just kind of moves and it sways and we we interact with one another and there's so many blessings and benefits that we receive from it. We do have that, that interaction and that jolt of energy. We have that reminder that there's a bigger kingdom out there than just what we experience every day that the Lord is doing something in so many people's lives all the time and it rejuvenates us and But there's a purpose in all of this. There's a purpose in our gathering. There's a purpose in our pursuit of who Jesus is. And I loved Elijah's prayer as he had just um, closed out with the worship team set. And he said, Jesus, help us to be here for you. And it's difficult sometimes for us to keep our eye on that ball because of all the other things that come with following him or all the other things that could potentially allure us to maybe wanting to be a part of a church. Maybe we're going to meet that special somebody or maybe they're going to take care of my financial burden or maybe they're going to finally help me make some new friends or any of these kinds of things sometimes that come as our motivation for wanting to be involved in a in a in a situation like this. And and the harder thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. The harder thing is for for us to to raise up people that are just simply followers of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm here for. 
But the great thing is, is it doesn't mean that by pursuing him and following him in that regard that all those other things fall by the wayside. Maybe you do meet that special somebody. Maybe you do get that encouragement because you've been around other friends and believers and you're reminded that they're here too. And all those other things that come with being a part of a church life. But the main thing, remaining the main thing, is the harder thing but the more important thing for us to keep as our target. I believe that one of the great dangers that we have in life is getting things almost right. I I think far greater than getting things completely wrong is the danger of getting things almost right. You think about what comes when we, when we're almost there or we, we get things mostly right. We have a sense of deception, a sense of security, if you will. Not deception, a sense of security. We are being deceived a little bit thinking I got this or I missed it just by that much or something. Being completely off the map and way out in left field and knowing you botched it or having other people's know, wow, you just really ruined that and everything. It's, it, there's hope in that because there's a lot to get right now. But getting things almost right means we got to come down off of something. we got to acknowledge a few things that are a little harder for us to swallow and be like, well, you know, i got to start over and do that again. This is the thing that was plaguing the audience that Jesus is responding to in the text that David read for us earlier. Jesus is talking to some of the, uh, the, the people that are perhaps most um, uh, correlated with the phrase, getting it almost right. The Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' time got so many things right. And we forget that sometimes because we we see in hindsight all that they got wrong. But in that day, the reason why they had such pull and authority and sway is because they got so many things right. But there was this critical element missing, this gigantic element missing that made all of their rightness basically worth nothing. And that's what Jesus is going to address in this interaction. And thank you, David, for giving us some context, because this is all in response to Jesus said to a a paralytic man, take up your bed and walk. And he did it on the Sabbath day. And when they challenged him on how dare you do this on the day of rest, God has said you're supposed to take this day off. And since God wasn't specific on how much to take off, we've come and we've filled in all the things that God meant to say on how much break, how much of a break you're supposed to have. So it turned into all these rules and it turned into this suffocation of I can't even like look to the right, but I can look to the left. All these weird little things, you know, that's work, but that isn't. Jesus comes, not subject to the laws given to man, and heals on the Sabbath day. And he tells that man to take up his bed and walk, so now he's guilty of breaking the Sabbath. And then Jesus goes one further in terms of violation as he says, I'm doing the work my father is doing. And now they're incensed because now he's claiming to be equal with God. And so Jesus is is walking into, knowingly walking into, intentionally walking into what is in a sense, in essence, a criminal trial. And he knows the scripture, he knows from Deuteronomy that you don't go into a criminal trial, you won't be heard, you won't be taken seriously without the, um, well let me read it for you, 1915. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that is committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge even be established. So Jesus knows the system. It's the word of God that came and said, this is how we're going to um, operate a civilized society. You need to have multiple witnesses. Jesus coming into this criminal setting says, I have some for you. I'd like to take some time to introduce to you my witnesses. And you've perhaps been in this setting, in a courtroom setting. 
perhaps you've seen all the shows and the movies and everything that show us that if you have a good witness, your, your, your case is pretty much made for you. As long as that one person, their testimony is airtight and they can speak to the, the, the uh, defendant's credibility, then that usually, or the other way even, it speaks to the case in such a way that people go, that was a really strong witness. And it turns the tide of a lot of cases. Jesus says, I have witnesses for you. I'll, I'll play along. I'll, I'll do the thing that is meant for you, mere humans to do. Me being the son of God, I have some witnesses for you. We're going to take a step backwards just a little bit before the, the text that um, David's uh, read for us. And we're going to go back and just fill in the gaps in verse 31 and following. Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. I should back up for a second. Those of you that are new, um, we are in John chapter 5. We've been studying the book of John, which is one of the four gospel accounts given about the life of Jesus. And we're in John chapter 5, and we've worked our way up to verse 31. Let me repeat what that verse says. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus isn't saying I can't speak for myself. He's saying you won't accept it if I just come and say, hey, I'm the Messiah. Verse 32, there's another who bears witness about me. I call to the stand as my first witness. He's saying, I know that my testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John and he's borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. I call to the witness stand John the Baptist, who you Pharisees sent an entire entourage to check out because he was having tremendous impact. It was said that nearly a million people came through the baptism ministry of John the Baptist. You think about that staggering number in that day. He was having a widespread impact. And so the, the religious leaders needed to check him out, needed to vet him and see how contrary he was to the teachings uh, of the uh, of the Mishnah. So they go after John. And what does he do? He bears witness to the truth. He looks to Jesus after saying, I, I am not even worthy to unlatch the sandals of the one that is to come. He sees him and he says, behold him right there. The Lamb of God that's sent to take away the sins of the world. If Jesus were putting John the Baptist on the witness stand, those are the words that he would repeat. And Jesus says, it's not that I need the testimony of some man, but I have it. And it's the same man that you've all been confounded by. Verse 35, he was a burning and shining lamp and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But as so many things happen after the popularity fades, I mean, John got pretty aggressive. He was pointing fingers at the leaders that ultimately cost him his life. John didn't hold anything back. He was a burning and shining lamp. And so after a while, that gets uncomfortable and the crowd started going away. The government comes down on him a little harder and things. But Jesus says, that's my first witness. My second witness in verse 36 is, is something even greater. He says, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter three. Nicodemus is one of these guys. He's one of these religious leaders. He's dedicated his entire life. And what does he come when he, what does he say when he comes to meet Jesus? He says, no one can do the works that you're doing unless God be with him. And remember we said that Nicodemus gets it almost right. He says that God is with him. God was him, but he gets it almost right in saying, no one could do pull off the things that you're doing 
unless God were with him. Jesus was doing something different. And, and so he says, my second witness would be the works that I'm doing that you all are rumoring about, that you're all confounded by. Those are the things that point to my sonship with the father. Verse 37, and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. My father is my third, is my third witness, is what Jesus is saying. And then he cuts to the core of their identity. He says, you know how you guys claim to speak for God, but you don't have the voice of God in you. You know how you claim to be the very presence of God in our midst? You haven't even seen him. We save that for our forefathers. Moses is the one that that, uh, had the voice of God speaking to him audibly. He was face to face with him at the burning bush. Jacob, your forefather, wrestled with God and said, I won't let you go until I prevail. And after he does, he says, I've survived. I've seen God. He, and Jesus is saying, you guys claim such authority and you not even equal with Jacob who has seen God and lived. They've diligently poured over the scriptures and they've worked so hard to perfect them. And he says, you don't even have the word of God in you. Now we're starting to see the picture here. They have, they have so many of the, of the almosts in their life, but these things aren't internalizing them. Joshua said, I have the word in me. I will meditate on it day and night so that I can do all that is written in it. I like how one commentator broke down this section. He said, these leaders had a problem of one approach. It wasn't an approach to Jesus. It was their, their, their whole problem was an approach to the authority of the scriptures. These men thought they could own it for themselves, use it to beat on other people with and hold them accountable, but it wasn't something that was internal. They had a motivational problem because they were seeking a glory that wasn't God's and they had a belief problem because it wasn't showing up in their life. If we asked them a question, we would say, how could you have missed? Because we're in hindsight, right? We see Jesus' life recorded in our rearview mirror. We know that it's true. We know that it happened. Even history that tries to dismiss him really can't do a thorough job of erasing the record of all that Jesus accomplished. We look back and we go, he was real. He was, he was who he said he was. He's changed my life. And so we look back and we go, how could these guys have missed it? They, they're so dedicated to the scriptures. They're, they're pouring over it. They're looking at it. They're, they're copying it down extremely carefully. How could they have missed it when they've dedicated their whole lives to find him? It's not that they weren't looking for the Messiah. That question should rock us to our core today. We can't just pick on these guys as though they didn't have any, they didn't put in any effort, that there wasn't any sincerity. We have to ask ourselves the same question. Is it possible that as Jesus comes before us and presents the truth of who he is, we still might go, I'm not seeing it. So I have several points that I want to make here in the time that we have left, and I'm going to give you a preview of them this morning. One is that your posture before the Bible determines its impact on your life. We're going to see this play out in these, in the lives of these men. How you position yourself before the authority of the scripture will determine how far it runs in your life. Secondly, the glory that you chase, because we all do, the glory that you chase determines your receptivity to this truth. 
And then third, your response to truth verifies what you truly believe in or demonstrates your belief system. So we get to pick on these guys and we get to pick on them from a distance because they're not us. But the reality is, is they are in a lot of ways if we're not careful, if we're not properly positioned before the Lord. So let's look at the first one. Your posture before the Bible determines its impact on your life. We're going to revisit verses 39 and 40. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. You, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You, know, you may be this person or you may be best friends with this person. Or you may be married to this person. You may work with this person. This person might be your parent. But we all know a sincere individual. We all know somebody that's all in. They show up and they're, they're never going to let something drop. They're going to be with you to the end, to a fault, right? They're just, they're invested. They're energetic towards it. And they're, they're like that Labrador retriever in your life. Where are you going? Where can I follow? What can I do for you? You need me? You need me? I'm here. I'm good. There's a beauty in sincerity. We value that. We appreciate that in somebody. We sense that that's how things get done. We have some some reliability in that. Sometimes you're like, I don't know if I could take it. But when you need that person, they're the first ones you call. There's beauty in sincerity. And we can't miss the fact that these men had a ton of sincerity. You don't get to the place that you that they that they were at without pure devotion, without stringent dedication, without making the sacrifices necessary to achieve the levels of religious authority that these guys had. But we also know the other side of the coin with sincerity is that there's a danger to it. After a while, that person's showing up and saying, how can I help? What can I do? And you're like, just tone it down a second. I need a break. You can't fix it this time or something along those lines. You just need a break sometimes from that sincerity. Why? Because they are doggedly, blindly focused on the one problem they've perceived in your life and they are not going to let it rest until it's solved, right? And sometimes that's a great blessing and sometimes it feels like a burden. Because this is what happens with sincerity is it blocks out a view of everything else. One of my um, favorite complaints to share with you all is the fact that I no longer own a boat. I enjoy this complaint. It's therapeutic for me. You guys are like my, I'm going to get a couch up here one of these times and just kind of weigh in on the fact that my favorite activity has been taken from my life. I don't, I don't dwell on this to try to encourage those of you that own nice boats to not only invite me and some of you do and I take you up on it. But I'm, I'm not bringing this up for you to even donate as a, to the pastor. It sounds disgusting even to say it out loud. I'm trying, but it's like, I, I don't know how the guys on TV do it and get away with it. But anyway. But one of the things I like so much about owning a boat was the first trip of the, of the late spring, probably by the time we feel like we have warm enough weather here in Maine. 
And, and, and it was so fun for me to like clean it from head to toe to, to start from the bow and work all the way to whatever the back of the boat is called and stuff. And, uh, the stern, I know. And, uh, and, and I would, and I, you know, it'd sit in my driveway and I'd have all the paper towels and the Windex and all that sort of stuff. I'm going to wipe down all the vinyl and get the glass going and everything like that to get it ready for a lot of fun in the summer. And then it occurred to me one season, I was like, why are you doing this in your driveway? Get it out on the water, anchor down, and then clean it out while you're floating and feeling the waves and getting some I was like, this is great. So first trip, I'd bring all my supplies and my trash bag and all that kind of stuff. And I'd anchor out in the middle of the lake and I would just go to town and start getting busy. I'd clean the, the little spots that got uh, on there, the, the leaves that snuck in in the late fall before you put the cover on, all that sort of stuff. You could just get it all going. And, and I'd get so obsessed over certain things. You know how on the older seats, they get some of those blacker spots. I mean, I'm getting them off this time and I'd get in and I'd dig and I'd spray again and I'd do all this kind of thing and everything. An hour or two could go by. And then I would have to go like, man, I got to stand up or the back of my neck's just, you know, beet red. And I know I don't burn. Right. And uh, and I and I would just stand up and I would go, oh, I'm in the middle of a beautiful lake. How did I forget this? How, how did I forget that every everything? The reason why I came out here was to see all this. And I got so obsessively focused on this one little stain or this one rip or this one thing that, that I I totally missed all the panoramic glory that was around me. This is what I think these guys are guilty of by getting it almost right. They obsessed about such minute detail, but but there's some beauty in that because we wouldn't have the scriptures preserved for us like they are. There's oral tradition that was passed down that they were so good at. It wasn't like when you when we play tell a friend and by the time it gets to person number 50, it's a completely different sentence. These guys kept the, the record straight. They knew how to keep it. Their discipline was off the charts. But it was to a fault. They missed the greater glory of the story of redemption that God was doing through this person of Jesus of Nazareth standing right before them in their midst. So Jesus said, these scriptures that you're pouring yourself into, they bear witness about me. So I want you to hear this. This is how we interpret or apply some of this stuff for 2021. And, and I know a lot of you are here with this. I know that a lot of you will resonate to what I'm trying to say. And it's, you're going to have to think about this for a while. You have to let it stew in your brain a little bit this week. But your standing before God has nothing to do with your sincerity. No matter how much you squint, no matter how much you sweat, no matter how much you gut it out for God. That doesn't improve your standing before him. It's not because he doesn't appreciate your effort. He, there's beauty to our sincerity. We should put the effort into. We should know our Bibles. We should go the extra mile for that person. We should be willing to sacrifice and make the, the and, 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 and make the payments and stuff when it comes to those sorts of things. But that doesn't improve our peace or our standing or our position with God. It's our humility to the truth. Or, or maybe I would say it's our receptivity to the truth. And that's one of the elements these guys were missing. They thought the truth was something they could own and hold it over everyone else, but it was meant to do a work in their hearts and to do it in their lives. They were sincere and they worked hard and they still missed the glory that God was doing, which leads us to point number two. The glory that you chase determines your receptivity to the truth. This is how Jesus put it. 
in verse 41. I don't receive glory from people. Doesn't mean that you and I can't praise him. What he's saying is, I don't get overly worked up by the flattery of other people's lips. Verse 42, seems like he's turning on a dime here. It's a bit of a strange statement, but he says, but I know that you don't have the love of God within you. I've come in my father's name and you don't receive me. If another comes in my own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? So Jesus says, I don't receive the praise of other people. I didn't angle my messiahship or I didn't launch a political campaign so I could get you guys on my side as so many other false messiahs would have done. As they came throughout history, and the scholars say there's over 60 or so right in this period of time that were bearing down on these religious leaders saying, it's me, I'm the new Messiah, it's me, pick me. What would they have done? Well, they would have seen this council and said, if I can get them at my back, then my my launch to my career, we're going to make an establishment out of this and we're going to move forward. Jesus says, I'm not trying to get your your approval. I don't need your flattery. I'm not trying to be part of your club. Doesn't it seem like he's doing everything the opposite of that? Instead to offend them, to expose them? It seems like a terrible way to start a campaign. Your biggest backers and you're saying thanks but no thanks. Not only am I not going to receive your your backing, but I'm going to tweet all about how terrible and wicked you guys are. Whole world's going to know it. Support me in 2022. It's not going to happen. I don't receive the praise from people. He says it's I, I put a I, I put a because in here. He says, because I don't know you. I, I know you don't have the love of God within you. The language here when he says, I know you don't. He says, I've experienced it. I've witnessed it. This isn't just because someone told me, oh, these guys are not very lovable people. Jesus says, based on the evidence that I've been given, you don't have the love of God within you. Love is present in the godly. If if they were who they thought they were, love would have been completely present in their life. Many of us are familiar with 1 Corinthians 13 because we it's called the love chapter and we've shared it at so many weddings because it defines for us the, the godly elements of real biblical love. And we're going to read just a paragraph of that from, from verse 4 on and, and see how many of these things weren't matching up with the people that Jesus is confronting. We could take weeks and just go, okay, see how they're not that? See how they're not that? See how they're not that? Beginning in verse 4, Paul says, love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus as truth standing right before him. Are they rejoicing with him? No. They're condemning him. Don't help him on the Sabbath. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. There's so many things that we could we could expose here and we could highlight, but I'm just going to look at two so that we stay on topic with the passage that we're studying in John 5. Love doesn't boast. We've already said that Jesus says, I'm not swayed by the flattery of others, but, but others were, as other messiahs came in, uh, one in particular, even uh, some, this is what Jesus is going to hint at here, that you'll take the testimony of somebody else that comes bragging about themselves. This other false messiah comes in some 60 years later and leads a revolt against Rome. So like, now this is our guy. He's going to free us politically. And so even the chief rabbi gets behind him, says, we think we found the Messiah. And they go charging. All of a sudden, squash. Rome says, oh, no, you don't. 
Oh, I guess we backed the wrong guy. Okay, maybe did we miss it 60 years ago with the last guy who said he was the Messiah? How do we dial the clock back? Jesus says, I don't receive praise or flattery from other people because I'm not here to boast. I'm here for my Father's glory. I didn't even come in my own name. And then also we saw in this in this first Corinthians passage that love doesn't doubt. Jesus is saying, but you doubt me. You don't receive me because I don't match your model because I'm not showing up with the way you defined the Messiah to be. You're doubting that I'm truth. So if love is present in the godly, then we can also deduce from this that glory is absent in the ungodly. Jesus says you don't seek the glory of God because you find it from each other. In other words, picture this little club of people that are just, hey, you look good today. Hey, you know, you're really sharp and all this kind of stuff. And they just hear it from each other so much that that's all they need. That satisfies them. You've been around people like this, right? You know how to play that angle. If I just stroke their ego a little bit, they'd be my best friend forever. You know how easily swayed they are by a compliment. Jesus says, this is why you're not looking for the glory of God, because his glory threatens yours. People that are looking for the compliment, people that want you on their side, are not open for a God of greater glory to move in. Why? Because he gets all the attention. What happens to them? So Jesus is saying, your will is blocking you from wanting the glory of another, even the God that they claim complete devotion to. I know you know this, but we need to be reminded that the praise of men is fleeting, but the pleasure of God is eternal. Living for him, for his glory, for his fame, for his honor is the only thing that kind of puts that wind in our own sails. And it's the thing that he blesses all the time. Third thing is that our response to truth verifies our belief system. Let's pick up again in verse 45. Jesus says, don't think that I will accuse you to the father. Parentheses here for me, because I don't have to. There is one who accuses you. Moses on whom you've set your hope. Oh, he's done it now. Don't pick on my Moses. Don't say I'm in opposition to Moses. That's what they're thinking. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the offense of all offenses because because now they're their guy. I mean, they have Moses trading cards. They know all of his stats. They're like, we know Moses backwards and forwards. We know his writing. We have given our entire lives to all things Moses. And you're saying that he's not happy with us. He's he's accusing us or condemning us that his own words would put us in the doghouse with God. This is what we get to see, unfortunately, picking on these poor guys here, is that effort doesn't produce belief. They had all the effort, and they were missing the belief that was required to be accepted by God. This is what they dedicated their whole lives to, is being accepted by God and riding on Moses' coattails. And Jesus says, it's not cutting it. Even with the things that he's written about me, you fall short. Right before our eyes, they're proving that just simply studying the Bible alone is not going to bring them to heaven. I I heard another preacher say earlier that it actually brings heaven to them. And I was thinking, that's really the, the way, that's the whole point of the Bible is we can get all kinds of memory going here. We can have sword drills. We can do all that. You know what a sword drill is? 
we refer to the Bible as a sword and then we kind of learn how to flip and find them the fastest and everything. We used to have those all the time. And, and I'm not that great with addresses in the Bible. Like I can't always tell you what book, chapter and, and verse. And I, and I hate that about my own memory. And it's an incredible skill to have. I love talking to people that can bring us right to that place and say, this is what the Bible says. But no matter how much I pour myself into that practice, no matter how much I can impress you with my recall or any of those things, it doesn't get me one step closer to the right kind of belief in Jesus as the Son of God in truth. It isn't about mere diligence. It's about finding the person of Christ in every page of the scriptures. And Jesus is saying, I was even in the early writings. I was in Moses writings. You just didn't see me because you weren't really looking for me. And we know how that is. We can be blind to all other things. We're cleaning the boat while the, while nature's around and the wind's blowing and stuff. And we're like, no, I'm looking for, I'm searching for. That's why they say it's so dangerous to preach from the Bible just based on a topic that you're passionate about. Cause you can find all kinds of things to support your topic. It's a harder thing to keep coming to the word and surrendering to what are you trying to say, God, and how do we stay faithful to it? Jesus doesn't give us a specific passage that Moses wrote to him about, wrote about him so that they could go, oh, we missed that. We didn't know it was chapter four or whatever. Not that they had those then, but he says they, he wrote of me. Could he be alluding to the fact that all throughout those, those five books of the Pentateuch that, that Jesus is, is prefigured, is, is, is typed in all of the scriptures and we see them showing up in some of the characters like between Cain and Abel where, where Cain brought a, a poorer sacrifice lesser than what Abel had and so he got mad at his brother because God accepted that sacrifice and he, he killed him. Do we see Jesus as the better sacrifice in that? Or when Abraham takes Isaac, his only son, up to the mountain to sacrifice him? Because God required it, simply required it. So Abraham said, got to do what God says. So he brings him up and then God holds his hand at the last second saying, you don't have to because I've got a sacrificial lamb, a replacement, a substitutionary lamb caught over in the bushes here. Take him instead. Do we see Jesus in that? Or when God leads his people out of Egypt... It says, put the blood on the doorposts of your home, the blood of a spotless lamb of a pure sacrifice, and the angel of death, when he passes over, your family will be safe. Or in Leviticus, when he establishes the day of atonement and says, you people need a high priest, you need a mediator between God and man, and the scriptures later tell us that that's the man, Christ Jesus. Or maybe in Numbers we see Jesus held up on the on the on the the post on the stick that's in the shape of a cross with a serpent wrapped around it. So all the people that are dying in the desert from snake bite after snake bite after snake bite, they just need to look at the one that's lifted high and ascended up on the cross for them to have life and to be safe. Many see this passage pointing back to a simple little phrase in Deuteronomy in chapter 18, 15, where Moses says that, that uh, God will raise up another prophet like me, one from among you, and he will lead you out. How do you miss Jesus in all of these things? If you're not looking for him, at least in the, the way that Jesus arrives, if you're not looking for him, you can miss him. Hebrews 1 tells us that long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Now, we're wrapping up here, but I just want to um, look at one aspect of 
how I see these Pharisees and the more I see their dedication and the more I see how much effort they put into their entire lives and seeing them get it almost right, I start to go, how many of us would be guilty of the same thing? Could I have fallen into the same trap? Could I have been looking for a Messiah of my own making? Do I have it easier because I'm on the other side of this story having been written and I have the New Testament and I see uh, millions and billions of faithful Christians keep the church alive. And so here we are in the 2020s and I'm going, it's kind of easy for me to believe. So I wonder, are we picking on these guys for not seeing Jesus? Does that track with anybody? I sometimes wonder, is it if it were up to me to spot Jesus in all of the writings of Moses, would I say, oh yeah, he's clearly in there. I don't know what your problem is. I need all kinds of tools and resources. You just see me in the middle of the week. I've got books on, stacked on books and trying to figure all this out. And I, and I have, like I said, the blessing of a rear view mirror that knows all this stuff is true. So are we picking on these guys for not seeing Jesus? Perhaps. I think it's important for us to humble ourselves and, and, and look at, look at that in history and say, you know, it's easy for us to look down on them, but maybe we would have done the same thing. But here's the important thing. Ignorance does not remove guilt. Just because they don't see it, just because they might have missed the obvious or maybe they missed the obscure even, doesn't remove their guilt. We are still lesser than God. We are still creatures created underneath him and we have violated his perfect law. And the only remedy for that violation was in God sending his son. And he writes all about it from cover to cover. Even the places we don't think Jesus is there, he's there because this is an entire story of his redemption to draw us to him, to tell us that it's going to be okay between us and him if we receive the plan, the payment, the blood of Jesus that has been sacrificed for us. So whether or not we can feel sympathetic human being to human being and say, oh, these poor guys, they, they gave it their all and they just missed it. Yeah, they got egotistical and stuff, but that happens when we get full of ourselves. doesn't really matter. We're all still sharing the same guilt under the holiness of God. And it's the blood of Jesus Christ that unites us. And he himself is telling them. You have an opportunity to receive it. He goes, I'm taking the time to, th- to, to lay out these witnesses so that you may be saved. This is our opportunity this morning. How we apply this instead of just looking back and seeing how we can pick on these poor guys is we say, Lord Jesus, if you're showing up to me and you're standing before me and you're saying, I am the son of God and I love you, I care about you and I want to do great things in your life and I want to move into your heart and take residency there. Do we go, yeah, you're just not the kind of guy I was expecting to show up. I don't know if I can take all of you. There's parts of you that I like. There's there's enough of you that I want to get almost right. But I don't know if I have the strength, the faith, the guts to get all of this right. This is the call before us. Do we receive Jesus as he is, all that he is, and leave the rest up to his doing in our life instead of us trying to manage it, manipulate it, or sidetrack ourselves with all of our effort and our religious duty and everything rather than simply just surrendering, saying, Lord, whatever you've called me to do, I'm willing to do. We're going to end it there and leave it on that note. I'm going to ask you to stand, please. Let's close our time in prayer as we uh, prepare to lift up our voices one last time. Lord God, I thank you for the faithfulness of your word. Thank you, Lord, for the respect that this church gives the teaching of your word. I thank you, Lord, for the attention. And I just know, God, that 
just about each and every heart in here wants to be transformed under your grace. And so I pray, Lord, you continue to give us the ability to do so. Give us the faith, Lord, to be patient as you do that in us. But Lord, give us the determination. Help us to learn from those that have gone before us that this does require effort, but it's not an effort that overall impresses you. There's this strange balance, Lord, that it seems like you bring us through in this area of discipline where we further ourselves in growing in you, but at the same time we're to remain humble because you're the only one doing the lasting work. So, God, as we get that out of balance and out of whack, just continue to gently correct us. Or if we were to ever get so far ahead that we'd become like these Pharisees and be so full of ourselves and arrogant in our own devices and our own knowledge or our own purity or religiosity, I just pray, God, that you'd break us of that. Confront us like you did back then. But Lord, always give us that opportunity to find grace in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.